This is an ABC podcast. And good morning. I'm your host, Aggie Dubo, and this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. We'd like to acknowledge that Pacific Beat comes to you from the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Well, today on the show, China offering a security deal to PNG, and will they accept it? Also, if PNG isn't already dealing with enough drama, how about being singled out as the most corrupt country in the region? And finally, it's become an eyesore on the shores of Apia Samoa. We'll have more on that later on in the show, but for more of any of these stories, simply stay tuned. I'm Egito Bow and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, to Papua New Guinea, where the government is trying to reassure Australia and the United States that it won't jeopardise relations with what it calls its traditional security partners, while discussing security issues with China. PNG's Foreign Minister Justin Jikinko caused a stir on Monday after he told the Reuters news agency the Chinese government had offered to assist with policing and security. The comments come amid ongoing geopolitical jostling for influence in the Pacific, and after PNG signed major security agreements with Australia and the US last year, Mr Kajinko later released a statement saying PNG would stick with their traditional partners on security matters and won't duplicate existing agreements. So to make sense of it all, we're joined by our foreign affairs reporter, Stephen Jidgets. With that, good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Aggie. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Again, what impact does Mr. Kachenko's initial comments uh, have in Canberra? Look, it's definitely caused a stir and it's created quite a bit of unease. Now, I, I think most people in Canberra who are watching this space and who are responsible for, for things like Australia's security relationships in the Pacific uh, are relatively confident that PNG will not actually go ahead and sign anything too substantive with uh, with PNG. Uh, sorry, with with China, I mean. Um, but the fact that uh, Justin Tchenko has publicly revealed uh, the fact that these negotiations has been have been going on since uh, September last year has definitely created, a, as you say, a, a bit of a stir. I, I think it's just another reminder of the way that China is, as someone here in Canberra put it to me yesterday, the way China is relentlessly pushing still to embed itself as a as a security partner for, for Pacific Island countries in the wake of its success uh, with Solomon Islands. Uh, and the fact that PNG is willing to entertain these talks at the very least uh, does show that at least some Pacific Island nations feel that they have to, at the very least, go along with the discussions and not refuse those discussions point blank. Now, whether that amounts to anything in the end, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But if you look at the, uh, the statement put out last night mm. uh, by uh, Prime Minister Marape's uh, office, uh, which included quotes attributed to, uh, to Justin Jachenko, uh, it, uh, it, was, it really was PNG in, in full reassurance mode, saying that it would do nothing to undermine relations with the US and Australia. Uh, and also, in a rather curious remark uh, or comment, 
saying that it, it would not be, quote, the end of the world if uh, China and PNG can't reach an agreement on security matters uh, because of uh, the fact that in the end PNG wants to keep China primarily as an economic rather than a security partner. So PNG seems to be hinting very, very heavily that it has no intention of actually signing on to anything new. It just feels like it has to go along with these negotiations so so as to, to not offend Beijing. But I think Australia will only be happy when uh, it's got that assurance in writing. We have a public statement from mm. PNG that it has no intention of uh, of expanding security ties with, with China. Yeah, but if you're going to make comments like that, it does sort of sound like you're stirring the pot a bit. And, you know, uh, trust issues between Australia and PNG, I mean, do you, do you, would you know why Australian government would be so sensitive to this issue, though? Well, Australia is super sensitive to this issue because PNG, of course, lies on Australia's doorstep and, and vice versa. Um, at its closest point, as people constantly point out, only, only a few kilometres away uh, across the, the Torres Strait. Uh, now, one of the reasons why Australia is so anxious about uh, Solomon Islands signing a security agreement with China is that in the very worst case scenario, it potentially offers China a beachhead just 1,600 kilometres from Australia. That was the line, in fact, that Penny Wong uh, rolled out as, uh, as shadow foreign minister just before the election last year when the uh, security deal between Honiara and Beijing was signed. Now, a similar agreement that would offer a similar opportunity to China much, much closer to Australia is much more alarming again. Um, but look, we're probably getting ahead of ourselves here. Uh, in the end, we don't even know whether what's been discussed is anything even remotely comparable to the to the uh, sort of sweeping agreement that that uh, Solomon Island signed with with China. The statement put out last night from uh, from uh, from uh, the uh, the Prime Minister's office seemed to imply that it was nothing more than an offer of additional equipment and training. And it's not clear whether that would be formalised in a, in, a, in a sweeping agreement. But even, you know, more PNG, uh, more, more Chinese police on the streets uh, of, uh, of, of, uh, of, of, uh, of Papua New Guinea, or rather, you know, Chinese police being embedded in the PNG police force, more Chinese equipment, potentially, particularly including things like surveillance equipment, drones, um, etc., that would be enough to make Australia very uneasy indeed. Mm. Stephen, what do we know or maybe not even not know about this approach from China? Look, uh, not much more than what uh, Justin Chichenko has told us. There's been no comments whatsoever from the Chinese government other than a very bland statement from the foreign ministry in response to a question uh, on Monday night uh, where it simply recited that, you know, the reporter would have to check with the police to work out exactly what's going on, but China stands ready to cooperate on all fields. So we didn't really get much useful information from from them there. Uh, Justin Chichenko has said a, a couple of things. He said that the offer was made last September, um, uh, that it was for help in PNG's, quote, internal security space. As I mentioned, the, the statement yesterday seems to imply that it's basically an offer 
to send more Chinese police to PNG in a training capacity and potentially more equipment being handed over. But beyond that, we, we simply don't know. It's also a little bit unclear as to whether negotiations have been pre- pressing on in any shape or form since uh, the uh, the initial offer was made in September. Justin Tuchenko initially seemed to imply that the first round of discussions was, was back in September when the offer was made and that there was another round of discussions uh, just last week. Uh, But then uh, in subsequent comments to the Australian newspaper, he seemed to imply that there had actually been no discussions at all since that offer was put on the table back in September, um, uh, suggesting that uh, PNG had been very happy to let sleeping dogs lie. So (laughs) it's simply not clear exactly what stage these discussions are at. There doesn't seem to be a formalised negotiation process with rounds. It seems much more ephemeral than that. But we are grasping a little bit in the dark here simply because so few people are saying anything about it. And the one person who has said things about it has said things that are mildly contradictory. Mm. And I'm also actually just wondering then, would maybe the recent riots or protests have been more of a reason for this possible security agreement to, to get moving? That's a, a very interesting element to this. There's no doubt that, that the riots earlier this month in, uh, in Port Moresby, which were, of course, devastating and caused substantial damage as well as, very sadly, leaving, you know, leaving several people mm. dead. Um, there's, there's no doubt that that has, you know, highlighted weaknesses in the security space. In, in Papua New Guinea, of course, this is something that's already very well known with the, the rounds of tribal violence that have been seen in the highlands. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the capacity gaps in the PNG um, police force have been very clear for some time. Now, that's one of the reasons why PNG and Australia struck this agreement last year uh, on, on security. The overwhelming focus of that deal is on PNG's internal security and trying to beef up PNG's police force, give it more personnel, including former Australian personnel, uh, to increase the power and uh, to increase the strength uh, and capability of its judiciary, to improve its equipment. Um, You know, this is a $200 million deal that will do quite a bit to address some of those internal security problems. Mm. But the, the riots do highlight how much work has to be done. And that's why there have been some comments, at least on social media, uh, suggesting that PNG uh, should take a look at this offer from China, China because it needs, you know, quote, all the, all the help it can get. But whether that thought is actually running through the PNG government in any way, shape or form, or whether the riots a few weeks ago are shaping its behaviour or making it more amenable to China... It's simply not clear. Justin Chichenko in his most recent comments seems to be implying that, no, it's got nothing to do with this. This is an offer that was put on the table months ago. It's just been sitting there. The riots are neither here nor there. But I think the riots perhaps do have the poss- the capacity or, or may add a little bit of urgency to some of these uh, some of these. Discussions in in Port Moresby. Mm. I think uh, of often some of the diplomatic wins that I suppose China has had in the Pacific recently, even with Nauru, uh, you know, severing their ties with Taiwan. You've got Solomon Islands. You've got Kiribati who've switched their diplomatic, uh, you know, recognition from China uh, to China. Do you think this is uh, PNG maybe just following suit? Well, if it does follow suit, then yes, it it, it would very much be them falling behind other Pacific Island nations that are 
at the very least keen to establish diplomatic relations with China and in the case of Solomon Islands, establish a security relationship. But it is worth, I think, separating out these security agreements from the, that question of diplomatic recognition. Diplomatic recognition of China is totally, it's, it's not in any way uncontroversial. Obviously, it's a hugely fraught and complex issue and deeply contentious. But in the end, countries like Australia and the United States are in no position to criticise specific island nations who do make that decision to, to switch diplomatic recognition from uh, from Taiwan to China because both Australia and the United States themselves recognise mm. uh, China rather than, than Taiwan. And I think that shapes Australia's response. Australia's been very, very careful uh, to keep any reservations it has about countries switching private rather than public. It has never placed any public pressure on any Pacific Island countries over this question of whether they, they uh, switch dipl diplomatic recognition. It's no secret that mm. Australia and the US would like Taiwan's remaining allies to stick with Taiwan, not least because it keeps the Pacific Islands Forum split on the question of the recognition of China, making it much harder for Beijing to make inroads in the region multilaterally. Um, if all the other three dominoes, if you like, were, were to fall, then, then Beijing's strategic position in the region more broadly would be bolstered enormously. But in the end, the question of recognition is a very different one to the, the question of right. the security agreements that Beijing is pursuing. It's those security agreements that really make Washington and Canberra uneasy, and it's those security agreements that it's most focused on blunting in this game of whack-a-mole that, that we're seeing at the moment. Stephen, what, what has uh, Mr Chichenko said in his latest statement, though? Because you've described it as being in full reassurance mode. What does that mean? Well, it's just a, a very clear attempt to calm Australian nerves by one reiterating that uh, that uh, he, that PNG will do nothing to endanger security ties with Australia, and two, as I mentioned, hinting very heavily that they're not going to sign anything without actually making that without actually making that that formal commitment. Uh, I think the line towards the end of this statement, which is in my mind rather extraordinary, where uh, they say almost airily that it would not be the end of the world if uh, China and PNG don't sign an agreement and uh, that the relationship with China is, quote, mature enough to withstand a disagreement over something like signing a security agreement. I mean, that seems to be a very heavy-handed hint that, that, that PNG is not going to press ahead with this. Um, and that it has no intention of, of, of going forward with it. Um, so that's how I read the statement. Um, of course, it is worth remembering that James Marape, the timing here in, in some ways could not be worse. Uh, James Marape is due to come to Australia next week uh, to make an historic address to Australia's parliament uh, on Thursday, the first Pacific Island leader to do so. So the stakes here in the lead-up to that visit are exceptionally high, even higher than they normally would be, and Australian sensitivities are higher than they would be at almost any other time because of this uh, impending visit and, and speech uh, in the wake of the, the security pact signed last year. So that, I think, explains perhaps uh, PNG's determination to go into, yes, full reassurance mode with Australia uh, and to uh, try and convince not just the people it's discussing this issue with directly, but also the broader Australian establishment um, that it's got no intention or hinting that it's got no intention to actually press ahead with anything substantive with China. 
Yeah, well, we'll definitely look forward. That'll be interesting with that visit from uh, James Marapin uh, as he approaches, obviously, Australia. So, yeah, we'll keep our eyes and ears on that. But, Stephen, thank you very much for your time this morning. Always great to catch up with you. No worries. Always a pleasure. Thank you. That is Foreign Affairs reporter Stephen uh, Jetitz here on Pacific Beat. As we continue our coverage on PNG for another take on the diplomatic stir caused by PNG Foreign Minister's comments, our reporter Mackenzie Smith spoke with Mihai Sora, the project director for the Oz PNG Network at the Lowy Institute. He says it underscores once again China's growing ambitions in the region. Look, it's not surprising insofar as uh, we've seen over the last couple of years a very concerted effort on the part of China to be a more prominent security actor in the Pacific. So we judge that China has a strategic intent in the region and that it's always looking for opportunities to increase its role or change its branding to be that of a security partner to Pacific countries. Elections are really important inflection points off the back of civil unrest. These issues um, can pop up again. So China's interest in the Pacific is constant. I suppose what's surprising is to hear the to to see the statement from Papua New Guinea's Foreign Minister Justin Chichenko um, coming so soon after PNG and Australia signed a bilateral security deal, which really did focus on policing and law enforcement in that country. And is there a risk of overlap here with Australia's security pact, or is there a clear space? For China to offer something of its own? Look, I think inevitably there is a risk of overlap. Uh, we saw in Solomon Islands that the rationale for China providing policing support to the Solomon Islands police force was to fill gaps. But in the couple of years that, since that agreement was signed, um, the way we've seen it implemented is that um, Chinese police training um, and police liaison activities are seeking to elbow out existing police partnerships uh, between Australia and Solomon Islands. So I think what will start as something that looks to address gaps um, will quick, quick, quickly go through or experience mission creep, I think, with the ultimate objective of, of China seeking to establish itself as a security partner for Papua New Guinea and more broadly in the Pacific. Port Moresby was recently devastated by riots. Is that something China likely has in mind in, in, in making security arrangements with PNG? Yeah, look, uh, without a doubt, there are massive gaps in law enforcement in Papua New Guinea. The, the most recent bout of violence in Port Moresby earlier this month um, is a really strong indicator of that. Um, we do know that this this offer from the Chinese side was on the table before that violence. It, it was on the table earlier, uh, earlier in the year. Um, but it certainly provides a useful pretext, um, uh, just as the violence in Honiara in Solomon Islands in late 2021 provided an important pretext for China to say, look, we have equities in security in this country and we wish to be physically present to um, assist with that security. And how is Canberra likely to react to any suggestion uh, China is seeking its own security arrangements in PNG? There has to be some value to the the effort that Australia has put in with Papua New Guinea in terms of establishing uh, a really strong security cooperation relationship. Um, Part of the security and policing deal that was signed at the end of last year between Australia and PNG was uh, was a package of assistance directed at increasing the capability and skill set of the PNG police force. So I think Australia uh, 
would be justified in expecting that, uh, that, that it remains the primary security partner of choice for Papua New Guinea. Ultimately, it's up to the government of PNG which direction it takes its foreign relations. Um, but certainly trust has to go both ways. And Australia does need to have confidence that commitments made um, by counterparts in Papua New Guinea will be upheld. Um, and overall, uh, a, a region-first approach to security challenges is consistent with Pacific regional norms. So it's not just Australian equities at stake here, but also broader Pacific equities. The expectation that it's Pacific countries, Australia and New Zealand included, that will be the primary security uh, providers for other Pacific countries in the region. That's Mihai Sora, the project director for the OzPNG Network at the Lowy Institute, ending that report. Well, Papua New Guinea has been singled out as the most corrupt country in the region by the agency Transparency International. The anti-corruption organisation has just released its annual global corruption barometer. In Dubrovka Volatia reports. Geopolitics, elections and regional commitments are seen as the main culprits for the region's low anti-corruption score. In the Pacific region, we cover PNG, Fiji, Solomon Islands and, and Vanuatu. Maria Matthew is Transparency International's Pacific advisor. What we are seeing is that these countries in the Pacific region have been stagnating at their Uh, anti-corruption efforts over the past five years. The survey asked people whether they ever paid a bribe or whether they think corruption has increased in their country. She says there's a lot of commitment from Pacific governments, but progress has been slow. In this year's survey, PNG holds the lowest score from all Pacific countries, 29 out of 100. Peter Aitzi from Transparency International PNG says it's due to a number of reasons. Well, clearly, Papua New Guinea still has a lot of work to do with respect to its uh, actions to combat corruption. The government, to give it credit, has taken some measures, but uh, there, there is a significant amount of work still needed to be done. He says it's particularly bad when it comes to elections. We've had a breakdown in terms of our government institutions and the work of, uh, in particular, the watchdog agencies. Uh, that provide uh, the governance framework for our country. And uh, one of those key institutions is our electoral process, which should uh, be, in, in a sense, the cornerstone of our uh, of the mechanisms to hold our leaders accountable. But over the years, that's uh, deteriorated, and uh, as a result, it uh, has lost its ability to uh, provide the opportunity for citizens to hold their leaders accountable uh, on a five-year cycle. He says over the past five years, things have worsened in PNG. The key state institutions have been politicised uh, or have been weakened by uh, perhaps the uh, withdrawal of uh, funding, which essentially renders them powerless. So as a result, they're not able to, pro- uh, to provide that oversight and uh, check and balance that's required of our political leaders. Timor-Leste and Solomon Islands are next, both scoring at 43 out of 100 points. Solomon Islands will hold an election soon, which Transparency Solomon Islands' Ruth Lilokula says puts it at risk. They have a very highly corrupt public sector. That's the main risk of vote buying, bribery and basically undue influence on and ignorant uh, voters for their ballot paper. 
She says geopolitics is also at play and could influence election outcomes. We have unscrupulous loggers, miners, and now, of course, the geopolitical situation that we have here in the Solomons, foreign superpowers who are actually uh, will be influencing how the outcome of our election this year. But we're working very hard to try uh, our very best to exercise their votes with responsibility. And when you talk about superpower, who do you mean by that? Well, there is uh, China. Vanuatu scores just slightly better. The recent political instability is seen as a reason for the still relatively low score. The report says that's made worse by natural disasters that have delayed some legal reforms, including one on political integrity. Overall, the Asia-Pacific region scored 45 out of 100. Fiji is coming out as slightly more positive, topping the average, Miss Matthew. Fiji, we've seen a new government in place and with it some cautious optimism uh, is what we're seeing, uh, where there has been some reform efforts such as uh, you know, doing away with uh, repressive media laws. We are looking forward to more or continued uh, reform efforts directly uh, on anti-corruption. Miss Matthews says Pacific countries must do more to stem the high corruption levels. The good thing is there is also, at the same time, a very vibrant civil society, uh, including the young people themselves, that show that they they care and they want to be involved in, in you know, being a part of a solution. So while we see that not, not much progress has been done in real terms, uh, there is also opportunity to do something about it now. The shining light is New Zealand at 85, while Australia is slightly lower at 75 out of 100 points. And that's Dubrovka Volodya with that report. Stay tuned because up next we've got your news wrap with producer Carl Evans. For centuries, Pacific Islanders have been sharing stories across the region. Stories from the Pacific is a weekly program that honours that tradition, allowing you to hear in-depth personal stories from sports people to farmers, artists to teachers, activists to entrepreneurs with one thing in common, their Pacific heritage and a unique and incredible story to tell. Stories from the Pacific, Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. It is that time where we head around the region to get the latest. And, of course, that's brought to you by our producer, Carl Evans. Good morning. If you look, I can't see you. My <laughs> screen is right in front of me. Sorry, Carl. Good morning to you, Aggie. It's good to be back. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, let's get straight into it. Uh, we did speak about this a little bit yesterday. Uh, there have been 13 people charged in relation to that 5,000 kilo meth uh, bus, but they've now been granted bail. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So a Fiji court uh, has granted bail to all 13 people charged in relation to that uh, big meth seizure in Nandi, according to the FBC. However, the court has placed them under a curfew and uh, ordered them to report regularly to the Nandi police station. So among that 13, as we mentioned yesterday, is uh, is Justin Ho. Um, he was involved in that previous case back in 2018, but walked free due to that lack of evidence. Uh, turns out he was also a former national squash champion as well, which I, wow. I, I found quite interesting. Obviously, he had a, <laughs> you know, a bit of a career change somewhere along the line. Uh, 
little bit. But uh, when is the court date, though, for the 13 men? Yeah, so according to the article, they'll be back in court on Friday, uh, the High Court in uh, Lautoka. Uh, in the meantime, police have said more arrests are expected. Uh, they are working with their foreign counterparts, including the Australian Federal Police uh, and the Pacific Transnational Crime and Coordination Centre, to carry out some further investigations. Uh, those drugs, they arrived back in December, and as we know, Fiji is uh, alarmingly being used as a transit point to help ship those drugs to foreign markets, and, uh, and that package in particular was delivered via a, a big barge uh, that was made outside um, the uh, economic exclusion zone. Crazy, crazy. Hey, look, we head to this little tiny island of Palma in Vanuatu, who currently has no police presence. I'm wondering, is that a positive or a negative thing, though? Uh, very much a negative, uh, Aggie. So uh, according to the Vanuatu Daily Post, two of its only serving police officers have been suspended for alleged brutality, meaning there are currently no police on the island to enforce uh, law and order. So for context, uh, Palmer is a, a tiny island just pretty much directly due, uh, due north of Port Vila, and it's alleged that the two long-serving uh, police officers allegedly assaulted a man under custody in November. Uh, according to the victim, the police officers took him to the police station without a warrant and, and assaulted him while he was handcuffed. Um, the commissioner of Vanuatu's police force uh, have has confirmed their suspension and said there's investigations into the incident are currently being carried out at the moment. I'd like to know then who really will fight crime on the island in the meantime. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It appears nobody uh, for the time being. Uh, an administrator for the local council confirmed that the two officers uh, handed in the key to the station uh, literally on Thursday uh, and the absence of police uh, is, is a concern among the community as it yeah, you know, understandably would be. Um, interestingly, though, this isn't the first time uh, that that police have been suspended. Uh, there was a case that ended up in court uh, last year uh, in regards to a man from Melee Village who died, uh, and there was also another young officer back in 2020 who was terminated for, for uh, fatally assaulting a youth. So, so yeah, there appears to be. Um, well, perhaps some sort of underlying issue there. Absolutely. I'm um, just quickly wanting to know: was did you know any report of? How many people actually live on that island? I don't actually, okay. Aggie. Yeah, I, I don't believe so it's very many, though. only two police officers. Yes. Must not be that many people, That's right. right? Okay. Uh, let's carry on, though. Uh, Solomon Islands PM, uh, Manasi Sogavare, has released an interesting statement uh, addressing geopolitics in the region. What has he said? That's right, yeah. So he says the Solomon Islands must learn to discern its real friends when it comes to genuine development. So make from that what you will. But he sent out the reminder as the Solomon Islands becomes increasingly a point of strategic interest uh, in the geopolitical global power play, if you like, and he said they must not be deterred by cheap geopolitical tactics. Now, he didn't exactly specify what those tactics were um, and didn't single out uh, any particular countries or anything like that, um, but he did say uh, that genuine friends, uh, gen- genuine development partners, uh, they will deliver programs with no strings attached, meaning they won't be camouflaged under any geopolitical interests whatsoever. And ultimately, he said the Solomon Islands, they must rely on these development deals to drive the country forward to attain its uh, economic uh, independence. We've obviously seen the Souls do that over the course of many years with Australia, recently with China and places like the US. Um, but yeah, it, it is somewhat of an ambiguous statement and uh, I'm not 
qu- entirely sure what the uh, what the reason for it yeah, is. Sometimes politicians just like us to sort of try and read between the lines, but we really can't. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> crazy. Okay, to sport though, uh, Fiji Rugby Union they may be considering a new sevens coach. Oh, who could that be? Yeah, so there's there's rumours at the moment that uh, the FRU is holding talks with former New Zealand sevens coach uh, Sir Gordon Chechens, who I imagine is a pretty familiar name for someone like yourself. Yes. Um, Now, they haven't confirmed it, but they haven't denied it either uh, with the FRU's interim administrator saying uh, no comment when asked about it. And uh, and it comes after the team's 17th uh, straight tournament loss under the current coach, Ben Gollings, uh, leading some to say that some serious soul-searching is in order, uh, especially with the Olympics uh, coming up. Wow. Uh, meanwhile, though, Samoa haven't started the season well either, though. No, in fact, they, they could be forced to play in the Sevens Elimination Playoff in Madrid at, uh, later this year if they don't uh, turn around their current performance. So they finished 10th in Perth, uh, losing to New Zealand in that ninth place playoff, and are currently ninth uh, on the points table. Um, the Fijiana women's team, meanwhile, are in a very similar position. They were thrashed by Canada in a seventh place playoff. So, yeah, look, let's hope that both teams can turn it around uh, for the upcoming Sevens tournament in Vancouver, which will be in late February. Late February, and I know you'll be watching that, so look forward to that. <laughs> Thank you very much, Kyle, for bringing uh, our news wrap this morning. Thank you, Aggie. Join me, Jacob McGuire, and me, Michael Chow, for Nija Daily, two hours every weekday morning on ABC Radio Australia. Nija Daily connects the Pacific with engaging interviews, compelling chats, and a splash of island music. We focus on culture, what's happening around the Pacific, and have a lot of fun doing it. Nija Daily, weekday mornings from 7 o'clock PNG time, right here on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. It is your host, Aggie Dubol, taking you through your morning. It is a Wednesday and we head to, of course, my motherland, Apia. Uh, Apia's shoreline has a new addition, but it's not something that's pleasing to the eye. It's a large fishing boat that ran aground on the rocks at Apia Beach during rough weather just over a week ago. But it hasn't moved since, so what's going on and will it be left there? To find out more about what's happening, we are joined by our reporter live in Samoa. Uh, it is Adele Fruin. If that I say malole so for Adele. Malole so yeah. how are you? I am good, thank you Adele. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, look, I've seen pictures of this ship online. I mean, tell us about the boat and how it actually came to be lodged on the rocks at Apia Beach. Thank you. Asamoah at the time was experiencing bad weather conditions. You know, due to strong currents, the ropes holding the ship steady broke and it it got carried to the beach while crew members were inside. You know, at first the ship was on the beach in the morning, but it got continuously affected by the strong currents throughout the day. It eventually became laid on its side and it has been for for over a week. The boat is a Vanuatu reg- registered longliner and owned by the Yufa Vanuatu Fishery Company Limited, which was contracted by um, Apia Fisheries Company for four weeks. However, w- their contract ended on the same day the incident occurred. Adele, can I ask you, because I just heard you say there were people on the ship at the time. Uh, any reports whether or not uh, they were injured? Um, no reports have been made of whether they were injured at the time. 
um, when when the ship got carried and you know or ran aground um, just off the Matau Matau Wharf at the time. But um, yes, yes, no one was. Uh, reported to have been injured at the time. Oh, that's good to hear. So I'm wondering, what are the locals making of this whole scene? Everybody was pretty much shocked at the time when it happened. Um, you know, you know, in the morning, everybody was just crowding there, had to get a glimpse of what was happening. You know, everybody was just shocked because it seems like it's something like it's a first or it's something rare uh, for our people, especially having an Apia capital. So it was just like a, a small spectacle, I would say, um, from the, um, the viewers. But, you know, as days turned into over a week, now it has become displeasing to the eye with some locals, residents calling for its immediate, immediate uh, removal of the ship. Because now it's become an eyesore. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm wondering, though, with maybe even the owner of the actual fishing uh, boat, have they mentioned or have they said anything? Is there going to be a removal anytime soon? No comments have been made by the owner of the fishing vessel um, yet. Um as for, um, you know, the removal for the boat, um, government is working through the Ministry of Works, Transport and Infrastructure. They're monitoring the, the boat at the moment. Uh, however, they are waiting for a report from the insurance company before the removal of the boat or the next step. A thorough inspection is also conducted by the Maritime Division to determine if any oil or hazardous material was on board, which may have leaked into the harbour. Um, on, on that note, the minister has also ordered the Maritime Division to issue a stop order for the boat, preventing the you know the vessel from sneaking out of local waters unless they deal with the situation at the moment. But also... Um, in the meantime, they um, the ministers also convey that uh, you know the owners of the fishing boat may consider the Satitor slipway for repairs in the meantime at their own costs, of course. But um, they will the vessel will not leave Samoa until it has been cleared by local authorities after compliance with all the law requirements. Because it's been run aground, it's sitting there, of course, it's an eyesore right now. Does that mean that the owners of the shipping company or the, the ship itself will be charged if it's left there any longer than it needs yes. to be? Yeah. Well, the, the minister has uh, relayed that all charges and costs will be made by the uh, fishing company or the owners of the fishing vessel. I suppose that would be then a bit of a hardship on the workers itself, right? Would that mean because the ship is aground, those workers don't have any work? Is is that correct? Yes, yes, that's correct. Absolutely. And they've been stuck there for yeah, yeah, they've been stuck there for over a week now. Uh, again, so what is the moves next? What what is it that they're expecting? A, they have to um so at the at the moment they're just expecting whether to uh they're waiting for the report once the report has been final on what the next move will be whether they the ship will be repaired in Samoa or not that all depends on the report from the insurance company especially with the cost um being involved in yeah absolutely and i'm wondering is this sort of the first time anything like this has actually happened there in in Apia? Yes, it, it's it's the first in so many years, I would say. Um, in Arpia, this is the first for quite a long time, I would say, a couple of years, I would say. Um, that, I guess that's why it drew so many of people, you know, to the Arpia capital, just to have a glimpse of the boat, um, you know, in its condition. But now that it's 
gone on for over a week and now everybody just are just saying that you know it's best to remove the boat and stuff you know especially with the you know with the tourists and everything and especially with the concerns with the environmental damages in case that happens well and i was just going to ask that has any environmentalists or uh, of the like uh, commented on what that can do to of course the sea there um, at the moment, um, no, no one has commented on, on that yet. It's just concerns from some of the residents uh, around that area, especially, you know, that area is where a lot is, is the Matauta Wolf. But so far, there have been so many damages because, recently because of the rough seas. And so now government is looking at um, trying to work out uh, how they that will be done in terms of repairs and stuff. Adele, I've read up on this and it's mentioned that there was a Filipino worker that was on board uh, who had mentioned saying that it was quite a scary experience. Have you yourself been able to speak to any of those that were on board? No, no, not not no one on board, just um, through um, some of the public members um, that were present at the time. Okay. Well, it is great to know that there is something that's going to happen that no longer this is, uh, will be an eyesore there on the, on the shores of our pier. I'm sure people, many of people have gone through just to take photos, right? Yes, yes, that's correct. Videos, uh, live stream that, yeah, pretty much the public were on the ground at the time when it happened. Well, look, Adele, we appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for sharing with us what has been happening there, and we hope that it will be removed sooner than later. Thank you as well. No worries. That, of course, is our reporter in Apia. That is Adele Fruin here on Pacific Beat. Well, ex-tropical cyclone Curly may be long gone, but she's left a great deal of wet weather in her wake. Some farmers fear the big wet has damaged crops, and others are upset they didn't get the rains they were expecting and hoping for. In the longer term, there may be much more rain on the way, with modelling showing an increasing likelihood that the La Nina weather pattern could return this year. Elizabeth Cramsey with this report. In the western Queensland town of Dirranbandi, the rain is rolling in. It's the same system wreaking havoc on Wade McConaughey's property, much further north at McKinlay, south of Cloncurry. In about 48 hours, we're up to 305 mil now, which I just tipped out about five minutes ago. It's a, it's a little bit too much rain. I was saying to my wife yesterday, it was sort of starting to come down, and I said, you know, be good if it could ease off, and she reckons I'm always negative. One minute I'm whinging, we're not getting enough, and then we're getting too much. But there is a fine line between enough and not enough. He says too much rain can be devastating. You get sort of three, four inches in this country, and it's pretty good. And then sort of anything after that, it's just running off. And so it sort of causes, you know, fences that get washed down, can take out um, dam banks. Like last year, we sort of had similar rain, and um, we lost two dams that we've rebuilt. And I'm pretty concerned that they might be gone again. Um, but yeah, it's sort of, and if you have too much rain, the cattle, they sort of, they can get cold and get ammonia and die. And sometimes the grass, if the grass is underwater for too long, it'll drown. And then it's sort of, you can have a lot of rain. And then in the end, it's not all that great. And you don't have much of a season because a lot of the grass uh, drowned and never come through. Further east in the Burdekin, mango and cattle farmer Daniel Lafer is breathing a sigh of relief after receiving around 32 mils. We had quite a wet early January, even before the cyclone. Uh, we had a fair bit of rain in December as well, and it'd be very, very rare to not have rain in February. So we, we, 
we're doing quite well. Dean Narramore is a senior meteorologist at the Bureau of Meteorology. The focus of the rainfall is now right around that low pressure system, which is just south of Cloncurry, and also into southern and southeastern parts of Queensland. So first off, around that low, we're continuing to see very heavy falls, so near and to the south of Cloncurry, in the 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, we've seen falls of widespread 50 to 150, with some locations getting in excess of 250 millimetres. And he says the wet weather is set to continue for a couple of days. That low might get a bit of a wobble to the west and northwest, so that might start moving some of that shower and rainfall activity uh, towards the Cloncurry area and possibly even up towards the Mount Isa area, maybe into tonight and into tomorrow. But severe weather warnings are current still for heavy rainfall for parts of northwest Queensland down into northern parts of the Channel Country and western parts of the Central West. Looking long term, the wet weather could be here to stay and a familiar name is set to make a reappearance. ABC meteorologist Tom Saunders says a La Nina weather event is likely for the Pacific Ocean this year. So when you have El Nino, those waters are warmer than normal. When you have La Nina, they're colder than normal. And the models are predicting that they'll cool down through the autumn into winter, even passing La Nina thresholds, uh, perhaps through winter or spring. Uh, currently, just over 50% of models predict La Nina through winter and just over 60% by spring. But just like with any weather event, nothing can be predicted with certainty. There is something called an autumn predictability barrier. And the model output this early in the year, so in January, for example, is not as accurate as it is at other times of year. So did we really have an El Nino this year? The Pacific right now is 100% in an El Nino state, and it has been since late winter, early spring. For Australia, though, it only reduces our rainfall in winter and spring. It doesn't impact our rainfall through summer. The accuracy of the modelling will improve through autumn and winter. And that's Elizabeth Cramsey with that report. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Hey, for more of our stories, head to abc.net.au forward slash Pacific. But I'll be back same time tomorrow at 6am PNG time. This afternoon, though, you can hear us again at 3pm PNG time. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia, though, because your news is next. And then coming up after that, it's the boys. It's Michael Chow and Jacob McQuire on Nisha Daily. But I'm Aggie DeBall, and you're tuning into Pacific Beat.